This is a talk about uh, goodwill as the cause of happiness. I was try- I, I remembered a line today, and I, I wished I knew the citation exactly, but within the last few weeks, some really good Dharma book was written, and uh, the Dalai Lama wrote the foreword to the book. And I remember the first line of the foreword because it was surprising to me. He said, the purpose of life is to... I'll give you a minute to think what do you think the Dalai Lama said. And then he said, the purpose of life is to be happy. And I was really surprised. I thought he was going to say the purpose of life is to serve. Here he is, known as a tireless peacemaker, a tireless worker on behalf of all beings, a Nobel laureate. I would have thought he would have said the purpose of life is to serve, the purpose of life is to remember all beings, to notice them, to notice their situation, to liberate them from all distress. And I think that the thing is, really, the truth is that when we're happy, when we're content, when we're at ease, when our mind is clear, we become liberated from self-preoccupation and we serve because it's the natural inclination of the heart. We don't have to take compassion lessons in our life or kindness lessons. They come wired into healthy human beings. I think it's extraordinary to be a a human being. It's a great miracle to be a human being with a built-in moral inventory and a built-in inclination to serve. It's a marvelous kind of a of a being to uh, find oneself. You know, in the in the Buddhist cosmology, they have levels of um, le- realms of being, and uh, it said that the Buddha taught that uh, to be born into the human realm is the best of all possible realms that it's a realm in which we can appreciate the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes of beingness and really perfect ourselves and express ourselves in terms of a caring heart. When we notice each other when we're not caught in our own story, then the natural inclination is to reach out. I love that story that I told you last night. It wasn't even a story. It was a moment in time where some person who had come into a store to fix his car radio said to the young man who was going to help him out to the car, look, I'm not your dad, but don't you think you need a jacket? That's not even a story. That's a mini moment. It's a comment. But for me, it so uh, typifies what I think is the human inclination. And I I was very happy that it was a man who did that. you know, then the Metta Sutta, it says, just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child. I like to think of the inclination to care and to protect and to take care of as not being a gendered incarn- inclination, that it's a human incarnation. Just as a mother would give her life to protect her child, her only child, just as a man would give his life to protect his child or, in fact, anyone else's child that he could, if he knew that he could and that that child was in need. I think that the greatest secret of metta practice and 
metta expression. You see it at the end of the metta sutta where it says the clear-minded one by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision is not born again into this world. Whatever many understandings that not born again into this world might have, I think of myself as reborn into suffering each time I become self-preoccupied and lose my connection of warmth with other people or my connection of warm well-being for myself. I think I am reborn into suffering each time that my mind gets caught in some sort of a knot. What we're doing here, this practice of relaxing the mind, of calming it down, of giving it this very simple task to do in a very pared-down environment, in a safe environment, is we're allowing it to say, okay, relax. Now, what do you see? And it's based on, I think, the truth that the that human beings have minds that when they settle down incline towards the good not because they free, not because of anything else than their natural inclination and their understanding about that everybody is challenged in this life life is difficult for everyone different in different ways for everyone but a challenge from the beginning to the end and when we see it we become so good-hearted about human beings I think it's the greatest uh, freedom to be able to un- to be able to unpreoccupy ourselves with ourselves and our own stories. I frequently get caught in my own story. It has to be this way or that way, or poor me, or look what happened to me, or someone said this, or someone said that. I think it's the greatest practice of wisdom. Things are the way they are for such myriad causes. It's very hard to think about this it's because of her, it's because of him, it's because of this, it's because of that. We really understand the way in which everything that's happening is caused by everything that ever happened. We stop blaming. And it's such a relief not to blame because then we have villains and victims. I think it's a great freedom. I think it's uh, the greatest practice of joy because liberated from self-preoccupation, we're really free to look around and think, life is really amazing. Not my life, but life. Look what's happening, you know? Here, it's a, you know, I, I, I love to be here in, in, uh, in just around the turn of the years, a little bit more light every day. The crocuses are beginning to come up wherever they are. Every day it'll be a little bit more light and a little bit more green from the rain. You look around and you look at all these people, some you know, some you don't know, and you think about everybody is wending their way through this life with a whole story. It's amazing to be a part of this whole drama. If we had a cosmic eye and we were looking from some great place out in the cosmos, we'd say, this is the most, really the greatest story ever told. Look what's going on here. Sounds like it's an easy thing. You look around and say, wow. But it's easy to explain and it's uh, simple to explain, but it's not so easy to do. Because my mind, I think all our minds, get caught in habits. I have so many fixed views about how things ought to be. 
I love that line. It's right near the end. By not holding to fixed views, if I could say one, two, three, all my fixed views disappear, I would be really free. You would be. We would all be. My fixed views about how things should be take up a lot of real estate in my mind. <laughs> and I'm, it's actually uh, uh, because, of, because of those fixed views that it becomes for me, I, I imagine for you also, incredibly easy to become annoyed. And I do find that true. I can be in the best of places and then something happens and poof, the best of places is gone. And I'm annoyed. And every annoyed is, oh, this shouldn't be this way. Oh, that shouldn't be that way. Oh, why is that? It's raining. I came all the way to California. It's raining. That the mind could, I mean, the mind in a, in a not balanced way can find everything to be contentious with. And if the truth is, that in order to manifest our fully liberated, loving, unfrightened heart, that we have to stop being annoyed. It, 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 it makes it sound so pedestrian, you know. Spiritual practices, I'm going to get enlightened, and then I'm going to stop being annoyed. But I think they're the same, actually. I'm going to stop being trapped in all the not liking this, and it should be like this, and it should be like that, and it should be like something else, because it's not like that. It's like what it is. Everyone and everything is just like what it is because of so many causes. Every once in a while, we get liberated from preferences. It should be like this and it should be like that. How many people here live in the, live in California, live in the Bay Area? How many people watch the World Series this year? For those of you who didn't watch, those of us who did watch, I asked people afterwards, it was kind of a mild hysteria around the whole Bay Area for some days afterwards, you know. I thought to myself, I wonder if they came on the television, they announced that world hunger had ended or that world peace had been brought about where the people would be so completely euphoric as they were because the Giants won the World Series. But anyway, in case you didn't know, the Giants won the World Series. And for the many people hanging on that sixth game and watching it, or watching all the games, I asked, what was your best moment? What did you like the best of the whole thing? And some people had other than this particular moment, but I would say nine out of ten people said it was the moment at the end of the sixth game. It was the last, it was the last out, not because the game was over and because they won, but because the players were hysterical. If you saw it, it was amazing. They threw their gloves up in the air. They ran into a big tight knot. Grown men embracing and jumping up and down and hugging each other and, and hugging everybody. It looked like a giant square dance with hug your partner and everybody hugged and everybody hugged everybody. And I looked at it and I thought, this is the ultimate of forgetting your preferences. I'm quite sure that not, I know that it's, they say about the team that they're very congenial and they work well together. But my guess is that everybody likes some people better than they like other people, and they probably have a best buddy on the team, probably have somebody who annoys them on the team. You know, you got all different, all different levels of preference and choice and proximity in the rest of the life. In that moment, you forgot about who you like better. It was indiscriminate hugging. 
And I think to myself, what if the world could do, seriously, indiscriminate hugging, not you're like from this family and you came from there and you said this and you said that. It was as if there were, nobody said, I'm not hugging you. You're the person who I always am annoyed by. <laughs> everybody hugged everybody. And they, they did not take time to remind themselves of who they had a story on. I think to myself, I would be really liberated if all the stories fell out of my mind of who I don't like because of what, because that's what it looked like. I particularly loved that the energy. I mean, I wasn't even at the game. I was watching. And the energy in the room that I was in was tremendous. And I thought to myself, if anything gets beamed around the world on on uh, uh, on a worldwide TV, people watch World Cup soccer, a billion people. I wished a billion people had watched that scene because all the baseball teams are, at this point, pretty ethnically diverse. But these particular two teams are particularly diverse. And everybody, all all shapes and 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 features and colors, everybody indiscriminately hugging everyone. And I was thinking to myself, this would be a nice thing for the United States to say, look, this is what we could do. This is how we do it. I thought it was a wonderful moment. It's a moment when, because the mind is so uh, not relaxed, it wasn't relaxed, was exalted, really, but it was exalted in such an open-minded way that all the old stories disappeared out of it. Somebody said to me, don't you think the other team felt bad? They weren't so exalted. I think they probably felt disappointed. But my guess is that they also felt very unified as a team and very much hugged each other in their disappointment. It was a beautiful display of athleticism. It could have been the other way. I mean, the consummate athletes, these people, and it's beautiful to watch them. It's like watching nine people dance together in a lovely way. And I think that probably the other, even then somebody else, cynical, said, you know, well, I'd be excited too if I was making $17 million a year on a contract. (laughs) But I don't think it's that. I think it's we all did something extraordinary together. And I think it's a tremendous template for the world. We could all do something extraordinary together, like save the planet and save human beings. It happens in families, you know, where siblings are estranged for years, and then someone, or parents from children, and then somebody gets a dire diagnosis, and everybody forgets who they're mad at, because this is really important. And it's as if something tremendously, like a light goes on in the mind and says, wait a minute, I've been confused. I thought this was important. This wasn't important. This is important. We are kin and loss is about to happen as it happens for everyone. Really, that the point of this practice is not to... uh, um, habituate the mind to kindness just by arm wrestling it to the, to the ground by phrase after phrase. Sometimes people say, I can't say another phrase. They say, it's not about phrases. It's about inclining the mind towards kind, kindly disposed. That's all. It's about, if you can't do another phrase, then take care of yourself. Don't do another phrase. <laughs> Sit quietly and wish yourself well. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. 
may I find some phrases to say that make me peaceful and happy so I can be doing what everybody else is doing. But not to struggle with it. It's not a mechanical thing. Ultimately, we love indiscriminately because we realize that anything else is a pain. Everything else is uh, mortgaging, really, the real estate of your mind or heart, however you want to call it, to something that really doesn't matter. There are things that matter like bonds of affection, like life and death. Donald used a phrase this morning, he said, practice in the spirit of metta. And I thought that was such an important phrase to say, because it's actually the spirit of metta that we are trying to really experiment with this week. Because it's the spirit of metta that begins to... Uh, dissolve fixed views. You have a view, oh, I don't like this one, or I don't like that. Well, maybe, let me just think in a relaxed mind, something else about that person. Begins to, it's like giving, giving the world the benefit of the doubt, giving people the benefit of the doubt. And actually, it's the act of relaxing the fixed view that allows clarity of mind to take over, clarity of vision, and the clarity of vision is everyone is just like they are because they can't be otherwise. And everything is just like it is because it can't be otherwise. The Buddha taught wisdom. Really, he said the point of the practice practices that he taught was wisdom. Really, he in his own story, he said, I need to he left his family, he went out on a on his own spiritual quest, and his quest was to find the cause and the end of suffering. And as a result of his own very diligent spiritual contemplative practice, what he came to feel, what he came to teach, what he came to believe, is really uh, explained in what we call the Four Noble Truths, which all the, all the lineages, different kinds of Buddhism, come together around the Four Noble Truths as being, this is the teaching that the Buddha taught. Actually, I don't think they're Buddhist teachings. I think they're human teachings. I think it's wisdom teachings. And the Four Noble Truths are that life is, is complicated and challenging for everyone. We sometimes think, oh, that person, that person. Nobody has it easy. Everybody has the possibility of loss, the possibility of disappointment. We have different uh, circumstances in life than, that for some people certainly make life harder than for other people. But really, true happiness is not dependent on outer circumstances. Really, it's dependent on how we are able to work with our lives with our own kind heart on our own behalf as well as for other people. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering, and it's so important. It's really, I, the word that I most like to use in saying the second noble truth is suffering is the imperative in the mind that things be different. Sometimes it's translated as a desire or craving in the mind, but they're not such, we, we have, we get confused sometimes around desire because there are healthy desires and Craving we think of as being something that only happens with certain kinds of, certain kinds of addictions. I think that suffering is imperative in the mind that things be different. I cannot be happy in this moment because, 
or unless this and this happens. Any imperative, this person should be different, this or that situation should be different, this or that group that's making difficulty in the world, they should be different, these politicians should be different. They are what they are. Now, if they, if things could be different, and if I could work on behalf of what I think would be wholesome changes in the world, I would certainly be wanting to do it. It's not about a passivity about, well, everything the way it is the way it is. I think that it goes without saying that we respond out of compassion for the well-being of the whole world, but not from a place of embitterment. That's actually such an enormous and difficult task to do. And I think that that's really another way of thinking about what we're doing here. How can I not be embittered, not be enraged, not be enthralled, held captive by my imperative? I have been uh, reading... Ah, well, so much for that. I... um, I had uh, prepared uh, to bring with me, and clearly I didn't, uh, this last week's Time magazine with Aung San Suu Kyi on the cover. Did you see that? It's an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary photo of her on the cover and in that. And uh, you surely know that uh, she has been a very prominent worker on behalf of uh, 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 the, uh, a more free and open democratic, uh, Burma or Myanmar. Uh, she's 65 years old. She spent 16 of the last 21 years either in, uh, detention or in house arrest in her home. And she has just recently been freed again. She continues to talk on behalf of wanting to work in a conciliatory way with the government in Burma. She said in the article, what I'd really like to do is uh, sit down with them and uh, talk over tea. And uh, in the article, which is very sweet, someone said, well, what if they don't want to sit down over tea? She said, well, maybe coffee. You know, but <laughs> but the, the whole idea that we could, that uh, she's very much teaches and thinks in the, in, uh, in the tradition of uh, Gandhi and uh, Martin Luther King, in the tradition of working things out, of having communication with people we felt were other in a, in a way that allowed for uh, both all the parties involved to hear each other and be transformed by the desire, honestly, for peace that we all share, that all human beings really share. I'm sorry to read the article because at the very end of it, she said it's really all about kindness. It's about kindness. She talked about the pain of enmity that Really, the cultivation of non uh, non enmity, non hatred towards the people who have uh, really kept kept her captive so long, and uh, from her point of view, really tyrannized the country. She talked about the relief of kindness, 
that it's a great relief not to carry with you stories of uh, villainy, stories. Well, I, 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 had, I did bring along, happy to say, the Dhammapada. And the beginning of the Dhammapada, which is a compilation of the sayings of the Buddha, Verse, uh, verses three and four and five and six, maybe my favorites. Verses, uh, and these, that this, this, these are those verses. They would harm me, they would embarrass me, they would rob me, they would defeat me. Those who think in such a way will never be released from their hatred. They would harm me, they would embarrass me, they would rob me, they would defeat me. Those who do not think in such a way will be released from their hatred. Your enemies will never make peace in the face of hatred. It is the absence of hatred that leads to peace. This is an eternal truth. We are but guests visiting this world, though most of us do not know this. Those who see the real situation no longer feel inclined to quarrel. I love that. I've seen it in other renditions as uh, anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. It's uh, maybe uh, uh, bring up in your mind the, the, uh, the image I, I offered you before of uh, uh, someone in a family or in a group or in a community who takes ill, and suddenly fighting about old stuff doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't matter. It just disappears. That knowing, really, in the moments of being alert, I got this from the article about Aung San Suu Kyi, about her own heart being uh, transformed to kindness by her awareness of how painful it would be to do anything else. That uh, when she really needs to uh, continue working uh, as tirelessly as she has on behalf of the cause of peace, but as a friend. She said when, when you really look at people, Everybody is struggling. Just the the same quote from the Dhammapada about anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. Longfellow said the same thing. He said, if we could but know the secret history of our enemies, all anger would disappear that if we knew anybody's story, we'd know that they were a human being, they'd had a life, and they were struggling as best they could, given their life and their resources and what they knew. Awkwardly sometimes, and in a way that we wish were different, but the best they could. I honestly don't think it's part of the human... um, Neurology to get up in the morning and say, mm, "How can I really mess up today?" I, I just don't think so. I, for people who are healthy, we're just not born with with that inclination. 
we can be roused to do terrible things because we get caught up in group energies. But really happy people don't hurt other people. So there are two ways in which I'd like to point out that there are direct connections between what the Buddha taught and what we're doing here. We left the Four Noble Truths, by the way, uh, at the second. So now we have to go back and finish the third and the fourth. The second Noble Truth, you remember, was the cause of suffering, or suffering is the imperative in the mind that things be different. And the third Noble Truth is that peace is possible. In this life, in this body, with this mind, peace is possible for human beings. I love that. I love to think about that. Even if I, when I'm distraught, if I remember that, and I actually can't feel peace in my mind at that point, it sustains me to know it's a possibility, and I have felt it, and I could feel it again, and that it's a human possibility. We could live in this life beleaguered in body and in spirit and everything else, and peace is always a possibility. And the change is an inside change. That's the third noble truth. The fourth noble truth is the truth of the path to really seeing that clearly, to manifesting that wisdom. And when every time you go down to uh, the dining hall, if you go a little bit past and you go to the prayer reel and you see the Eightfold Path on, and you turn it, and people do it in different ways. They turn the part that most corresponds to what they think they need to do or they turn it like a roulette wheel. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful icon to have there. And it's really the path that uh, is uh, amplified in the Metta Sutta. Later on this week, we'll look at the Sutta together as a text, and we'll go through it line by line and study it as a text. And when we do that, you'll see that embodied in the text are wise understanding, wise aspiration, wise action, wise livelihood, wise speech, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And so that's the fourth noble truth, is, is the practice path to arriving at that. And the sixth, well, depending on how you number the path, uh, of the three contemplative mind training parts of the path, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, I think that wise effort is the undersung hero of the Eightfold Path. We talk a lot about mindfulness, and we mindfulness retreats and concentration retreats. We don't have effort retreats, really. But I think actually everything hangs on effort. That the moment, uh, as, I, as I talk to people in interviews, and they say, you know, I'm going along, and I am with the feeling of goodwill, and I'm even with those phrases. And all of a sudden, uh, lo and behold, and without my doing it, my mind is filled with a story about what I'm going to do uh, next Monday night when I leave here, or in fact, uh, for Valentine's Day, what I have in mind, or uh, my summer vacation, or whatever. And to be able, and it's really interesting. I had a whole plan, a cruise to the Caribbean planned out. 
And I really didn't feel like coming back to the phrases or the, in the field, because after all, it was actually more interesting. It's got a little boring, and that was interesting. So it's actually an effort to say, I'm not doing that now. Right now I'm, con- I'm cultivating concentration. So right now, on behalf of my own heart, on behalf of my own well-being and the well-being of all beings, I am letting go of the, of the summer cruise and Valentine's Day and next Monday night, and I'm just going to be here now. And it's an effort to say I'm not doing that because there's a lure. I sometimes think that... Um, when when we do a, 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 a particularly a sitting meditation, but could be walking, could be anything, that we're really with the moment, with the moment, with the moment. And if you remember, uh, in Alice in Wonderland, uh, she f- goes down a rabbit hole, and she follows some instructions. She meets a, a a cake that says "Eat me," and she does, and then something happens. And she finds a bottle of something that says "Drink me." And she does, and then something else happens. I think we're going along and minding our business, minding our business, and a thought comes along and it says, "Think me," and it's extremely alluring. And you could, you know, that that you really have to say, you know, as a matter of fact, that wasn't what I had in mind at this moment. At this moment, I was headed in another direction, and the direction that I was headed in was a really deep, steady concentration with my mind inclined towards goodwill. So thank you very much. Come back later. Come back Monday. That's really what wise effort is. It's one way of thinking that wise effort. And and actually in in Scripture, the Buddha described wise effort uh, very clearly. And it had only four parts to it, four things to do. He said, the practitioner notices in the mind the presence of wholesome states. Wholesome states might be loving kindness or compassion or forgiveness or appreciation or uh, tolerance or patience. The practitioner notices the presence in the mind of wholesome states and cultivates them, amplifies them, rejoices in their presence. The practitioner or the practitioner notices the absence in the mind of wholesome states and begins to cultivate them, which is what we're doing here. We are cultivating wholesome states moment to moment. When you sit here and the a sitting is particularly long and you think, if I sit here another minute, I'm really going to explode. I want to get up and walk around sitting here too long. If I say these phrases one more time... So I, and then you say to yourself, you know what? Pretty soon it'll be the end of the time. Let me see if I can use this time to just come back with a kind heart to what I'm doing and start all over again. Every moment of patience. That's patience. Say, I wish it were 5.30 so we could have supper. But it's not. It's not going to be 5.30 till it's 5.30. You know, that, that everything really fundamentally depends on wisdom. It's not happening now. 5.30 is happening a little bit from now. <laughs> so it's really a moment of wisdom that balances the mind. Fundamentally, it's wisdom always that consoles the mind and balances. Things are what they are. They couldn't be different. I can change them, maybe. But the, this is what's happened. The wisdom that things happen and pass. 
that nothing is permanent. Sometimes in a difficult moment in practice or in my life, I say to myself, everything that arises passes away. It's actually said to be the penultimate statement that the Buddha made in his life before his last sentence, which was, strive on. Well, actually, some some of the translations say, strive on with diligence. Andy Olensky says, who's a very good Pali translator, says he prefers uh, walk into the future with confidence. And I love that. I think that's a very nice, better translation of it. Everything that arises passes away. Walk into the future with confidence. So that's a, that's a, that's a, a lovely wisdom statement just to remember. So the third of the wise efforts is the is the effort to notice when unwholesome states are present in the mind. So unwholesome states might be anger, vengeance, um, greed, confusion, jealousy, envy. To notice them there and to say, oh, look at this. Unwholesome states filling my mind. What can I do about this now? I could take some deep breaths. I could not continue to tell myself the story that's fueling any of those states because they all have a story right behind them. The story is an imperative story. I need to have this, otherwise I can't be happy. I need to get rid of that. I need to tell someone, I need to do this. They're all imperative stories. When the mind is relaxed, it loses its imperative. Say, well, I really don't need to. And then they disappear. So you don't have to put them out of the mind. I used to think that and just kind of push them out of my mind, elbow them out of my mind. If the mind relaxes, imperative goes out of it. And the imperative, when the imperative disappears, the stories disappear. Didn't realize that until just today when I was thinking about that. I think that's true. And the fourth is noticing the absence in the uh, in the mind of unwholesome states. And in, in a sense, he doesn't say that, uh, congratulate yourself, but more or less what it says in the sutta is noticing the absence of unwholesome states and keeping it that way. So they're actually all four permutations of the same thing, if you got that. But it often happens that the instructions are four ways of saying the same thing. But I think that that wise effort is what we really are practicing here moment to moment. It's not that we're not, pra- we are practicing phrases, but the phrases are a heuristic technique. As Donald mentioned this morning, people in, in over time have had other methods, techniques for cultivating goodwill. Intense concentration can be built up just on the breath, can be built up just on repeating a sign or visualizing a certain visual image. Intense concentration tends to clear the mind and in clarity of vision, our goodwill manifests. There are lots of ways to manifest or to uh, really bring into fruition the mandate of, of uh, of the Buddha and the Metta Sutta. I love the first line of it, by the way. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who knows the, know the path of peace. It just sounds, in these days, when 
There are so many problems in the world and so many things that need to be addressed. And you think, who knows the answer? And it's not the answer to it. So, but this is what should be done. Let's let all behave in this way. And we'll see what we can collectively do. So I think that that wise effort is a really, is really what we're doing here in addition to concentration because we definitely are doing this as a concentration practice. Just do this, just do this, just do this. And we are definitely doing it as a mindfulness practice because you have to know when you're not doing it. When a person comes and says, you know, I was just there with my phrases steady, on with it, feeling good, feeling warm in my body, relaxed in my mind, and then all of a sudden I had a memory of this or a thought of that, and then this happened and that happened. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. Sometimes extraordinary things let themselves come to mind when the mind is relaxed. Really things that have been hidden for a long time that we are uh, better off for having unburdened ourselves of. We see them often leaving. Oh, there's that this, or there's that that. that okay, that's gone. I can face that. I can remember that memory now in the light of day in a clear mind, and it's gone. It doesn't have to be hidden in in subterranean mind somewhere, taking up space and tensing my mind and body. So this is effort practice. It's mindfulness practice and it's concentration practice. So here are the two particular... Well, that's one of the particular ways that it's actually um, wise effort practice. Uh, I want to also talk about the fact that uh, it's actually uh, a mindfulness practice. It always seems to me that, to begin with, every moment of mindfulness, with or without phrases is a moment of loving-kindness. It's a moment of compassion. If I can meet this moment as a friend and not fight with it, say, oh, look what's happening. Oh, look what's happening. It's a compassionate act to myself. I don't have to have said a phrase. Or I think every moment of mindfulness is a moment of compassion or metta, which I think are pretty much different flavors of each other. I also think there's a specific way in which it matches instructions for practice from the Buddha, uh, in which uh, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a, a sermon called The Foundations of Mindfulness, and there are four foundations of mindfulness, and if you've been a mindfulness practitioner, you probably know that you begin with attention to breath and breath in the body, and then attention to feeling states, different different feeling states that, you, uh, with, that accompany each moment each sensation, each experience in life is pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then the third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the contents of mind, what's there. And I think it fits so exactly to what the Buddha was talking to, about, referring to when he was talking about wise effort. We notice in the mind, oh, anger is present in the mind, or envy is present, or disappointment is present, or... Uh, uh, goodwill is present, or happiness is present. Just 
but there is a whole instruction in a mindfulness sutta about paying attention to the mind. So just to point that out to you, because sometimes people who have done mindfulness practice don't so much imagine, uh, don't so much think about mindfulness of mind states and they're continually changing. The fact that uh, some of them we meet easily, some of them we struggle with. Don't so much see it as an object of mindfulness practice as, say, the breath or the body. I think actually I have a, a private little theory about um, the four foundations of mindfulness, um, the foundations of mindfulness sermon, uh, because the Buddha, by and large, didn't give meditation instructions. He went from A to B to C and sat with people and said, look, the cause of suffering is the imperative in the mind that things are different. If you struggle with things that you can't change, suffering, that is suffering. Not suffering then happens, that is suffering. But the end of suffering is possible. And uh, especially in some of the early uh, descriptions of his life and his teachings, uh, a, uh, a teaching will end and it'll say, and as he spoke, so and so many, 50, 100, 400, um, in the minds of X many people, suddenly they were liberated, uh, arose in their minds, the spotless immaculate dharma arose in their minds, and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. Like, ah, oh, that's lovely. I love the idea of someone giving a dharma talk in my heart, being liberated from taints. I actually, when I listen to my, my, my colleagues and my teachers, giving a talk, I often think to myself, there's a precedent for people suddenly seeing, da-da, and getting it in such a way that they don't forget it anymore. I forget. And I have a feeling that uh, not everybody got it that way. So the Buddha said, this is my, this is completely, I made this up, that the Buddha thought to himself, hmm, not everybody is getting it this way. I'll have to break it down. So I'll break it down into these four foundations by mindfulness of the body and of feeling tone and of the mind and of the way the mind organizes. So anyway, I think this is a a mindfulness practice. I think it's a a wise mindfulness effort practice. I think it's a wise effort practice. And I think it's a concentration practice all the time because of the steadiness and the repetition. So I thought I'd... uh, end with one story uh, just because I, it, it makes such a point for me about the trouble that I cause myself when I uh, uh, when I get caught in a view however trivial or mundane the view might be I was in New York for uh, part of December there were all kinds of great things to go you can go to the Nutcracker and this and that and uh, I went uh, 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 one night. Uh, my husband and I went to the Irish tenors. They were playing in the Beacon Theater. And uh, how many of you have heard the Irish tenors? Wonderful. All from Ireland, all singing and speaking a wonderful brogue, singing with a wonderful band accompaniment, 
wonderful Irish songs, and it was lovely. And uh, I noticed that in the, I was having a good time. The auditorium was full, and it was a festive evening. And I noticed that they made uh, a lot of um, uh, laudatory remarks about firemen and uh, policemen, and which I noticed particularly because they didn't make laudatory remarks about dentists or accountants. They talked about firemen and policemen. And I, I could, and they'd always get a big applause. And I, and then I figured, well, probably a lot of firemen and policemen are Irish in New York. So that probably that's why they said it and they got a big applause from it. And I, you know, I kind of, I got a kick out of it. I like that. Having a good time. And then the evening comes to an end. And you know it's the end because they say that's our last song and they sing the last song. And they've sang all, sung all Irish songs, Killarney and this and that. Beautiful. And they sang God Bless America to finish with. And my mind thought, why are they singing God Bless America? You know, they're Irish tenors. Uh, and then, uh, so all of a sudden, my good, I'm having a good time and my mind is now rating this performance. Why are they singing God Bless America? And then everybody stands up in the whole auditorium. And I think, I don't think we stand for God Bless America. We stand for the Star Spangled Banner you stand up, but not for God Bless America. They sing God Bless America on the seventh inning stretch in, in baseball games. So that people stand up because they're stretching, but you know, it's not the national anthem. And then what's more, I see everybody's got their hand on their heart. I think, when is supposed to have their hand on the heart for God Bless America? So the, you see my mind is doing this whole number. And then I'm thinking, I don't know how about, why should we sing God, God Bless America? First of all, whatever I think about God, I wouldn't like to say something as specific as America. Why not the whole world? These are anyway the Irish tenors. And any God that I have is blessing the whole world, not just America. I really am not such a... And at some point, I realized that my mind, in some sort of a supreme sudden glitch, had completely tied itself in a ridiculous knot. And there's several thousand people standing with their hand on their heart, singing God Bless America and having a ball. And I'm having a, a little fit in my mind about it. <laughs> what am I doing? So I decided I'm singing. And so I'm standing and I'm singing, and then they sang it a second time and a third time, and I ended up in a great mood singing God Bless America with 2,000 firemen and policemen and who knows who else was there. <laughs> But it, one false move, and the mind could fall into a ridiculous <laughs> trap. One false move. So this is a constant and ongoing practice. I was thinking about uh, the paper that you got this morning about the benefits of metta. And I wanted to just, I, I see that I have just a few minutes left and I'd like to share with you a particular practice that you might want to do sometime in addition to the practice of blessing. When I began my practice, and sometimes now, I think about, I, I put the the paper with, I memorized the blessings of metta. And then I said them to myself over and over and over again. And I felt so happy when I did that. And I think I felt happy, first of all, because uh, as you're doing 
as I am doing anything, as we are doing anything, that's a focused same thing over and over again, everything else gets pushed out of the mind, which is mostly the clutter of I like it, I don't like it, it should be like this and it shouldn't. And the mind settles down and feels happy. And besides, I'd love it if all those things happened to me. And people sometimes say, do you really think they happen? Do you think that line about poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them? I take that to mean that there's a part of me, and I think it's our, our innermost being, our, our heart, our heart of hearts, that really is quite safe in its own benevolence. And that, I think, is what I would like to protect because I think it's my greatest source of protection. So if you have your paper in front of you, we could recite the benefits of metta together. If you don't have the paper with you, lean over and look at somebody else's paper. People who practice metta Sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.